The Lord be with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. We welcome you to Marsh Chapel on this mild midwinter day. Whether you are seated here in the nave of the chapel, listening via WBUR at 90.9 FM in the greater Boston area, listening streaming over the internet at WBUR.org, or listening later via podcast, please know that you are a valued part of this community. My name is Jessica Chica, and I have the pleasure of serving as the University Chaplain for International Students and Chapel Associate for Lutheran Ministry here at Marsh. Dean Hill is traveling this week and sends his warm regards to each of you. Today we welcome our friend and colleague, the Reverend Jen Quigley, to the pulpit as she will be guest preaching on this second Sunday in Lent. Jen serves as the Chapel Associate for Vocational Discernment here at Marsh Chapel, guiding and mentoring the undergraduate students who participate in the chapel's internship program. We gather this morning to worship God and be reminded of the divine gifts of grace which join us together in the body of Christ. May we stand in in praise of God as the choir leads us in our introit.
Let us pray. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. We now enter into a time of reflection on both the things we have done and the things we have left undone that might burden us throughout our days. As the choir sings the Kyrie, may we reflect on our lives as interconnected members of this world and children of God who are constantly struggling and striving to live out God's word in the world. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. hear the good news. God, who is rich in mercy, loved us even when we were dead in sin and made, alive, made us alive together with Christ. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from St. Paul's epistle to the Philippians, chapter 3 verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. 
Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it, may, that it may be comfort to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 27 with the antiphon. is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail to me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be, be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek in his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You who have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be encouraged. Wait for the Lord. Let us stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel.
Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Glory to you, O Lord. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning. Good morning. I'm always humbled at the opportunity to stand in this pulpit where so many past and present great preachers stand. And I'm always grateful to Dean Hill for extending the invitation to be with you again this morning. The lectionary is a lovely discipline, but it can also be pretty terrifying, especially when your very limited preaching schedule is determined by those far above your pay grade. The regular rhythms of ordered worship, including regular lectionary preaching, can have as much of the wild movement of the spirit in them as any other form of worship and preaching. Case in point, I recently had an extended conversation with the dean about my in-progress dissertation on Philippians and a large part of the conversation focused on the question, will it preach? I ask this question because I'm concerned with ethics just as much as history. That is, I would like to do history ethically, but I'm also concerned about the ethical implications of our shared Christian histories. I am concerned with communities long gone just as much as those living and moving and having their being today. That is, I take the communion of the saints, both in heaven and on earth, seriously. Our fraught, fragile humanity is entangled in its own histories, and the past is no more dead than the present is alive. That is, the gospel is both good and news because it ha is and has been told, retold, studied, shared, spoken, preached, taught, written, shared, translated, and lived, not in a vacuum, but by real people. So I felt a sense of the spirit, or at least of deanly intervention, when I found my annual preaching assignment falling on this second Sunday of Lent, where our epistle lesson is from Philippians. And lo and behold, it's a text that, of course, I have studiously avoided dealing with yet in my dissertation. So here I am, dealing with it this morning in sermonic form. So knowing that, my sisters and brothers, I ask for your indulgence to let me lay aside for today a second glance at transfiguration, to gloss over the courageous question of the psalmist, the Lord is my light and my salvation, of whom shall I be afraid? 
and to let me focus instead on Philippians. And perhaps worse, I'm not even going to deal with our whole reading today, but instead focus on a single clause. Our citizenship is in heaven. This, by the way, is how people write whole dissertations on a single four-chapter letter. So I invite you to meditate with me this morning upon a heavenly citizenship. The best way I can get at what it means to have citizenship in heaven is to think about the koinonia of the gospel, the commonwealth of the gospel, which is, I think, the central theme of the letter. In other letters to other communities, Paul calls them ecclesiae, assemblies, churches. But here, in Philippians, in a letter full of love, imitation, friendship, and calls to like-mindedness, Paul claims that he and this beloved community are in a koinonia in the gospel. Koinonia is far too frequently translated as fellowship today, a term which calls to mind at once our beloved coffee hour and some sort of men's glee club meeting. But our community is not only our coffee hours and our hymn singing. My best way to describe a koinonia is as a joint venture. Paul and the Philippians, and you and I, and the whole of the community of faith, we are in a joint venture in the gospel together. This might make you a little squeamish because it sounds a little businessy, doesn't it? And actually, it is really an economic sort of term. In antiquity, people used this term koinonia, venture, in all sorts of business transactions from land leases to marriage contracts to joint investments in flaxseed businesses. This term springs up again and again in ancient papyri and epigraphy, little scraps of ancient paper and scratchings in stone. When there is a sharing of both risk and reward, there you have a koinonia. And that beloved is what I think Paul means by modeling the community of faith as a koinonia, a venture. For together, we take on the risk and the reward of the gospel. If this were my dissertation, and it's not, I'd share with you now some ancient inscriptions to help illustrate my point, but I'll spare you the details here. I think I can explain this with a slightly more contemporary example. Once upon a time, when I was an undergraduate student, I stole a BU mattress. Technically, I didn't actually steal a mattress, but the university thought I did. And I ended up paying exactly one-third the cost of a bright blue, fire-retardant, twin-extra-long mattress, which was $90, which to the university is basically the same thing as acknowledging that I did steal a mattress. How did this all happen? My freshman year, I won, or thought I won, the housing lottery. Instead of a crowded, stinky, large dormitory with its shared bathrooms and cinder block walls, I was placed in a triple in a brownstone on Bay State Road. I was destined for wall sconces, a non-working fireplace, wood paneling, and other features that suggested a classier college experience. Imagine my and my roommate's surprise then when moving in, we found ourselves in what can only be described as one of the smallest triples on campus. Two of us slept a mere two feet apart from one another, perpendicular to the wall, and the third had to set up her mattress against the wall apart from us. And to squeeze between the space left in the middle of the room, you had to turn sideways and shimmy, or you'd bang your legs against the metal bed frames. 
Somehow, we also squeezed three dressers and three desks into this oddly shaped room. The windows looked out, not over Bay State Road, but the alley, including the delivery entrance for Sargent, where they deliver the cadavers for the Human Gross Anatomy Lab. The rest of the building had spacious doubles and triples, but we, we were clearly in the worst room in the place. So the three of us made do for the year, but when room selection time rolled around again, we began to eye the room across the hall. None of us really wanted to be in a triple again, but we weren't confident we could get a lottery number high enough to even snag a double or a single. So we entered a pact together, to move together as a triple, and we managed to get that room across the hall. The following year, we would be moving into a giant triple, facing the trees of Bay State Road. We had room to bring in a futon in addition to the BU, in addition to the BU furniture, and there would still be room to move about. There were 11 windows, we would have a large walk-in closet, and each of us would have a large corner of the room. And with proper dresser positioning, we could even have some modicum of privacy. Except that summer, we each received notice that one of the mattresses from the tiny triple was missing upon final inspection of the rooms. Before our accounts could be settled, before we could move in, before we could reach the promised land across the hallway, each one of us would have to pay one-third for that mattress, that is, unless one of us fessed up to taking the mattress. At first, vague accusations and mistrust flew. Who had checked out last, anyway? We couldn't remember. Was one of us lying? After all, how well did we know one another, anyway? Perhaps it was the impossibly chic roommate from Paris who had landed a hostessing job through charm and charisma. She was always staying out late for fascinating parties, poetry readings, gallery openings. Maybe she took it for a lark or an art project or something. <laughs> or perhaps it was the roommate who had just gotten her first college boyfriend a few weeks ago. He had been hanging around quite a bit lately, and college students do things with mattresses all the time. <laughs> or maybe it was the quiet one who didn't spend as much time as the other two. Who knew what she was thinking about? None of this, of course, got us anywhere because none of us had actually taken the mattress. Somehow, through bureaucratic red tape or facilities error or other great mystery, we were all on the hook for this single solitary mattress. So, finally, to reach the promised land across the green carpet and the original hardwood, we eventually all ponied up $90. Beloved, my roommates and I were in a koinonia of sorts. We shared together the risk, the hardship, and the reward, and we all shared in the joint cost of that mattress. So Paul's letter to the Philippians is chock full of financial language, including this central theme of a koinonia in the gospel. This koinonia, this venture, is not only how we relate to one another, but it's part of a much larger divine economy. Unlike my college roommate's story, our koinonia is under God's supervision. And thus Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Our gospel venture is not worked out in a vacuum, but in the confidence of faith that God has begun a good work in us and is able to bring it to completion. In a divine economy, God's economia, God's house rules, our relationship to one another is a joint venture, but this joint venture has God as its ultimate investor and site supervisor. And now to return to what it means to consider a heavenly citizenship. 
Too often when we read this passage, we imagine heavenly citizenship as endorsing an outlook that is solely otherworldly. Our heavenly citizenship is used to comfort us in suffering. Our heavenly citizenship overlooks our human frailty in this life in hopes of the world to come. This is not necessarily bad theology, and it might sometimes be good pastoral care, but it's not a complete picture of heavenly citizenship. Or, heavenly citizenship is used to wash our hands of the troubles and challenges of this world. We invoke a kind of quietism because the world is just too messed up, too mired in sin to have any hope. Our denomination takes 40 years of wandering in the wilderness on LGBTQ inclusion. Our American political rhetoric has descended to a nadir of demagoguery, fear-mongering, and division. Our personal, student, and national debt seems too overwhelmingly large to ever possibly address, so we just keep putting off payments. Too often we throw our hands up or wash our hands of these matters, despairing of this world, looking to our heavenly citizenship, to a long moral arc of the universe, without any willingness to ask whether we or the universe need to be bending just a little right now to participate and move toward that longer moral arc. Too often we think of our heavenly citizenship as our passport. As Christians, we've got this little blue book which we can show upon arrival on the far shores of the stormy Jordan. No trouble with our border crossing. No wall for us to cross. We're bound for the promised land because we have our heavenly citizenship. But passports aren't the only part of citizenship. Citizenship comes with a participation in a bigger system, in the divine economy, and with that comes some obligations. Citizenship is not only about the benefits you get out of it, and that's as true today as it was when Paul exhorted these Christ communities in Philippi that they and we have a citizenship that is in heaven. Rome wasn't exactly known as a tax-free haven, and the empire had significant judicial, financial, bureaucratic systems that affected citizens and non-citizens alike. Paul couldn't have conceived of any form of citizenship that didn't also have participatory obligations attached to it. So I'm surprised when Christians think of heavenly citizenship as simply a get-out-of-hell-free card. Perhaps as Protestants, this makes us nervous because it sounds a little too much like works righteousness, but I don't think that an expansive view of our participation in the broader divine economy in any way contradicts a reliance upon God's grace for salvation. As citizens of heaven, we are in a koinonia in the gospel under God's supervision, and it is only by the grace of God that we are participants in this joint venture. This is how Paul can write that despite his current imprisonment, he and we can be confident that we are all shareholders in God's grace. We didn't and we can't earn these shares. They are a gift freely given. But our larger participation as a result of that grace demands our use of those gifts in full participation of our venture in the gospel. I realize these are deep and perhaps swirling theological waters that might be crashing over your head and probably mine too right now. So I'll offer one more contemporary example. The other day, I came home from a productive meeting with my advisor after a short teaching day to find Soren sitting on the couch, surrounded by a six-foot radius of piles of paper. He had begun filling out our taxes. Soren has always done our taxes, but this year they are extra complicated as we purchased a home in Portland last year and have been renting it on Airbnb. 
Asking him how it was going, he gave me the kind of look that communicates that I did not need to ask. He told me that because of our Airbnb rental and because we are married, we are declaring ourselves a, quote, qualified joint venture, which means for tax purposes, we would split all of the cost deductions and all the profits equally. That's awesome, I said. Do you know what this means? In the eyes of the federal government, we are in a koinonia together. Soren was a little less thrilled because he still has to do our taxes. <laughs> but he did share my enthusiasm for just a brief moment. Beloved, our heavenly citizenship means that we participate with one another in God's economy, and that participation is not without risk, reward, and obligation. Perhaps a theological orientation that is more holistic, less self-oriented, and I think makes more sense is to ask not what your heavenly citizenship can do for you, but what you can do for your heavenly citizenship. And I think meditating on that sort of question is an excellent practice for Lent. Do not ask what heaven can do for you, but what you can do for heaven. I think this letter, this line of communication back and forth, binding together Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and the saints at Philippi, offers a communal and personal roadmap, an examination of conscience, a way into prayer for you this Lent as you consider your heavenly citizenship. As much as we tend towards the heroization of Paul, he's part of a larger community who are entangled with one another and bound together in the spirit. We're a big community here at Marsh Chapel. We're bound to one another across the vast expanses of time and distance. And we are together entangled in these moments of ordered worship that overcome these distances. So, as a Lenten practice, I invite you to imagine Paul and Timothy writing, perhaps Epaphroditus carrying and reading aloud, and these named and unnamed saints listening to these words. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full discernment to help you to determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Do you pray with joy and thank God for those whom you remember in prayer? Are you confident that God is at work in you and that God will bring that work to completion? Do you hold one another in your hearts? Do you share in God's grace with one another? Are you confident in your share in that grace, no matter what your current circumstances? Do you long for better connection with those around you? Do you pray for others? Do you pray for their love to overflow more and more? 
Do you pray for them to have knowledge and full discernment? Do you help one another produce a harvest of righteousness for the glory and praise of God? If, as the hymn says, I am bound for the promised land, where do my possessions lie? Where do I invest my wealth, my time, my energy, my life, and my very self? Do I invest myself in that which is most lasting, most true? Do I invest myself in other people, in their growth, in faith and faithfulness? And if I am bound for the promised land, whom do I invite to go with me? For beloved, we are together in a koinonia in the gospel. We are together citizens of heaven. Amen.
may be seated. We now come to the time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and lift up our lives and ourselves to God. Please assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remaining seated, standing, kneeling, or coming forward to the communion rail as we sing together our call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord. Sisters and brothers, our baptismal vows call us to compassion and mercy on behalf of those in need. We offer our prayers for the church and the world. I will end each petition with, Lord, in your mercy, and your response will be, hear our prayer. O oh God, revive and invigorate the varied ministries in your church and encourage new avenues of praying and proclaiming, nurturing and teaching the good news to all in need of receiving it. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Renew and nourish the vital web that connects all of creation and open in us occasions for reflection and rejuvenation. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Intercede where justice and peace are lacking and raise us and our nation's leaders up to respond to the needs of all people. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Assure the restless and those seeking answers that they may find comfort and strength in you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Relieve suffering in all of its forms, mind, body, or spirit. We pray especially for those we name silently before you now. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Hope beyond all human hope, you promise light and salvation in the midst of darkness and despair, and promise redemption to a world that will not listen. Gather us to you in tenderness, open our ears to listen to your word, and teach us to live faithfully as people confident of the fulfillment of your promises. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And now, with the confidence of children of God, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen Good morning, and welcome once again to the koinonia of Marsh Chapel. We welcome whether you are in the nave at 735 Commonwealth Avenue today by radio airwaves on 90.9 WBUR, the live stream at WBUR.org, or the podcast on the chapel website, bu.edu chapel. As we strive to learn one another's names this Lenten season, if you happen to be in the nave this morning, please find the red pad at the center aisle and add your name. And at the end of the service, introduce yourself to someone new. If you join us at a distance, please make yourself known to us through an email to chapel at bu.edu or a call to the office at 617-353-3560. For a detailed list of upcoming activities, please see today's bulletin or the chapel website and allow me to highlight a few of the items on the agenda for this week. In addition to today's coffee hour, there will be an international student luncheon at 1230 with Ms. Jessica Chica and our cohort of international students. 
See Jess after the service for details. Wednesday evening at 7 p.m., U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Pinsky will lead the Favorite Poem Project Reading at the BU Hillel House. All are welcome to attend. Saturday is the Global Meditation Retreat here at Marsh Chapel. To register, please see Ms. Jess Chica or contact the chapel office. And on Saturday night, the Marsh Chapel Choir and Collegium will perform Bach's St. Matthew Passion here in the nave at 7.30 p.m. The performance is free to those with student ID, and there will be tickets available at the door. Finally, sign-up sheets to contribute to the chapel's annual Easter breakfast will be available in the chapel office following worship today and through the rest of the Lenten season. We hope you may be able to volunteer a few hours of your time or a box of strawberries. See Director of Hospitality Caitlin Noe if you have any questions. It is both a gift and a discipline to be a giver. As the ushers wait upon us, or as you find the link on the chapel website, bu.edu chapel, for online giving, I thank you for your generous support of this community.
Blessed are you, O God, maker of all things. Through your goodness, you have blessed us with these gifts, ourselves, our time, and our possessions. Use us and what we have gathered in feeding the world with your love through the one who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. overflow more and more with knowledge and full discernment to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Go in peace. Amen. <laughs>